So thanks again, Ben, with our very special setup. Got the levels right this time, got the leaning tripod, and got the slowest back from my mic. So I think we'll be okay and it will be serviceable. Hopefully. So, anyway, uh, I'm here with Ben, Ben Gilliat. Is that, uh, I always, is that the right way to pronounce it? Is you it, do. you pronounce you the it right. T? Yes. Okay, you know, New Orleans names are impossible. But, um, <laughs> Ben is a buddy of mine. We met each other during his time at University of Virginia. He's here from New Orleans and went to St. Aug. And you graduated the same year as me, correct? Okay. Yep. Awesome. Ben here is a very intelligent guy about Jesus. What you're you're very intimidating <laughs> intellectually. I know a little bit about a lot of things. Oh, it's mother. It's, that, that was the big discussion, though, right? We had all those texts back and forth. What the hell do we talk about? We talk about gaming. We can talk about vi- we can talk about video games versus we can talk about. We could probably get into console versus PC. I bet. I bet you could elaborate on that. We could talk about superhero movies. We could talk about your your. DC and who you referred to, I found out, as not DC. DC right? and not DC. Right. Yeah. So, well, let's just dive into it. Uh, what's, what, so, you said you started, like, getting in comic books. I know neither of us particularly grew up on that. Yeah. Uh, you said you started about a year or two, right? And I remember you talking about the, the Black Spider-Man and how that was, a, like, or that was, like, your kind of foray into it. Yeah, if I'll talk about how I got into comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, it was after Avengers first came out and then we got into a discussion with I got into a discussion with a, a guy who's gone off the deep end and has gotten steadily more angry and racist as he's gotten older. And we were having a conversation about women and non white people taking over various media that they haven't been fully represented in before. And he had a it was a conversation about supporting the content and people not inherently supporting it. So out of curiosity, because I hadn't read comics yet, I decided to pick up the Ultimate Spider-Man stuff for Miles Morales. That was the black Spider-Man who took over after Peter Parker died in the Ultimate Universe. And I started reading comics from there and just started picking up whatever caught my interest. The uh, normal Marvel-verse was a little heavy with stuff going on. So I mostly stuck to the Ultimate Universe and ended up picking up uh, Miss Marvel. That's uh, Kamala Khan, the Muslim girl who's Miss Marvel now on that. And I've been steadily reading more comics since then and just getting into all of that and... I've had a number of thoughts about comics as a serialized medium, how that translates to film, what's going on in comics versus what's happening on film. Where like for me, I think the the movie verse for Marvel is kind of retreading its own history, which is a little bit annoying sometimes because you've got this mega franchise where every film they drop makes at least six hundred million upwards to a billion and a half dollars every time. And we get into these arguments about which of the two big comics companies, Marvel or DC, is doing a better job in terms of representation or not. And we end up giving DC a lot of shit for its no fun mentality with Grimdark Batman, Grimdark Superman. Which to be fair, I, I actually kind of liked Man of Steel. There's some problems with it. For instance, the massive collateral damage everyone likes to pick on, rightfully so. But I will say, you know, it was, as, as much as I like kind of stylistically, I saw a really good comparison where they someone took it, brought the film to DaVinci, which is a culling program, and, and brought the colors back out a little bit and sat, you know, brought the saturation up a little to show you just, I think the thing was called um, Superman's Sky Should Be Blue. <laughs> it was just really interesting seeing, like, wow, you really see how grayscale that film was when you saw it side by side. But yeah, as you say, people give it a lot of help. Everyone's like, oh, Batman was so gritty when they did the new trilogy, the Nolan trilogy, and then 
as soon as that ended and everyone started doing gritty, everyone's like, oh, why is everything so gritty? It's, it seems like no one's satisfied. Yeah, it's interesting. So, like, Marvel got out first with the sort of larger universe thing. And Marvel has sort of taken the reins on colorful and fun and whimsical and just dominated that. And so DC, I Guardians think... especially. Right. And so DC <laughs> is trying to make themselves stylistically distinct from Marvel in that regard. And so I think Batman fits a grimdark atmosphere very well because of Batman's lack of counseling on losing his family and how he's never really gotten over that. Which is fascinating for Batman, especially because yeah, in terms of... That has never been even that dark. Oh, well, yeah. It's so but it, it feels especially creepy. off with Superman. And like the problems I have with Man of Steel mostly come from the fact that so much of what happens in that film doesn't really feel earned. Like You have all these flashbacks that are constantly happening during Man of Steel that aren't really sort of related to what's going on in that current arc of the plot. They're just sort of laying down necessary, necessary backstory for things that aren't really earned. And then there's the whole Papa Kent thing. So and the problem for me is in, this, in that particular film, there's two major issues. In that film, military power is never questioned. On Krypton, they have this order where the military is supposed to follow the civilian government. The military stages a coup, and no one even says anything like, you can't do this. They just accept that military authority is valid and can do what it's doing. And it isn't questioned on Krypton when the soldiers decide to take over. And the same thing happens on Earth. Question. Was that what the Civil War was? Am I wrong? I thought it was. Wasn't it like a whole Civil War epic space battle thing happening? No, like they, they just storm their console chambers and then just start jacking up everybody. And no one goes, you can't do this. They just go, oh shit, here it is. <laughs> and then when just Super... Just way too roll over and die about it. Right. And then when Superman decides to turn himself into humanity, he seeks out the U.S. military to surrender himself to. Not the civilian government. So in both instances involving military power in that film, military authority is the only authority that apparently matters. And then Superman's arc of being good seems to be about him being natural born and not a product of the care and love that he receives from the Kents. And then it becomes this huge thing in the film between his... Because you're talking about you're the whole thing where they had the, the, the skull-looking DNA thing they drew from and how everyone was born to that caste system, right? He was like the first natural birth. Right. Like his strength was the fact that he was the first natural birth in forever, right. right? And so, like, Papa Kent spends the whole film telling him, telling <coughs> Superman to just let people die and protect himself and hide because people aren't going to like him. And so, and then the entire film is Superman rebelling against that. It's his Earth dad going, no, don't save people. And then letting himself get killed so Clark doesn't have to reveal himself. And then his space dad going, hey, I made you this cool outfit. Hey, you can do whatever. Show them a better way. And in like a lot of ways, like, so like, that's like, those sort of things are really bothersome for me. So like Superman's sort of arc is about how like Superman's sort of history for me is sort of grounded in the idea that the wholesome aspects of American culture 
evidence through growing up on a farm in Kansas. Or was it when or the first Superman come out? 40s? 30s, Ooh, 40s? Probably even earlier than that. Well, it wasn't like a comic strip originally? Wasn't yeah. It, actually, it wasn't originally a comic book, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's an old franchise. Yeah, it's just like the whole, whole American ideal thing during yeah. the Cold War, right? I mean, it's, it's really, really spiked. <laughs> it's just interesting to me that Superman being the product of a country based upon, founded on its sense of ideals, is now a franchise about how an alien who is natural born is like gonna be our hero or whatever. And so then there's like the Kryptonians themselves and he comes down and he punches the crap out of them and he's forced to kill Zod at the end. And that's supposed to be a big deal for the audience, but it's not a big deal for the audience that isn't fully versed in Superman lore. You can't just go, he's Superman, he's not supposed to kill people if there's no setup for that in the film. Why is that the line for Superman? Why is that the line he won't cross? What is, why does he think life is so sacrosanct that he won't even take the lives of people who are an imminent threat to everyone around them? Why is it so significant that Superman was forced to kill Zod? And the, the, the comics response to that is, it'll be in the next film, because that's how comics works. Comics is serialized. It ends on cliffhangers every single time. And people are always waiting for the next comic to come out to sort of answer the questions of the previous comic. But to me, that's kind of like eating like a, like a bag of chips or like a box of Pringles. Like it's inherently unsatisfying. You keep eating more and more of it, waiting for satisfaction. Empty to come. calories that taste good in the moment. Exactly. And it never comes. And that's sort of the problem I have with Superman is that for most of Man of Steel, it's mostly fan service like. The joke is that Superman Returns a couple years ago, back in like 2008, 7, 2008, was called Superman Lifts because he doesn't punch anything in that film. He just lifts heavy stuff, the whole film. And this film feels completely counter to that film. Superman punches the shit out of everything in that film. Instead of like, like saving, saving someone, someone from something. Exactly. Although, well, you know, I, I did, did, I liked the flashbacks, I definitely agree there were issues with it, but, but I did like, for instance, um, I guess it wasn't a flashback, but like the, the, the oil rig scene was interesting. Like a lot of those like saving people moments for some reason were very satisfying. I guess I'm too easy of an audience, but his early stuff and his younger stuff, like the bus and all those things, those were all really interesting moments. I felt like there was nuance going on, but I guess that was like the Papa Ken thing didn't undermine everything in that way. I think that's a sign of like, I think that's what's really disappointing sometimes with films like that is that Zack Snyder is actually a very good director. It's kind of the same thing with J.J. Abrams. If there's an emotion to be pulled in a scene, J.J. Abrams will pull the emotion out of that scene. The question always becomes, is he pulling the right emotion at the right time? Right. Is it earned? Does the audience understand what's going on in that particular film? And that becomes a huge problem sometimes when you're trying to build up a mythos around someone. So like the counter to Superman, for me, in terms of what we have right now, is that the not DC company, Marvel, who gets a lot of passes for doing stuff that I don't think they always should, the counter to Superman for Marvel would be Captain America. Captain America has an earned characterization set up in the film. His early arc as a kid with all sorts of health issues, who's in a constant state of low-level pain his entire life, for whatever reason, doesn't like bullies. And it's clear, he states it, I don't like bullies. And he wants to fight in a war because apparently his parents were both involved in the war. His mom was a combat nurse who got killed. 
he's growing up in a rough neighborhood trying to stop people from being assholes to other people. And he just sticks to that as he gets older. And then he follows through in that in the film. So, like, in terms of narrative strength, Captain America is a white Irish kid from New York who gets superpowers and then puts on USO shows for people and soldiers until his friend is in trouble. And he decides to go save his friend and all those soldiers. And after he saves his friend and all those soldiers, he puts together a team in the 1940s of his friend from the gay Irish side of Brooklyn, a black guy who's clearly educated and went, it's implied he went to Howard University, one of the oldest HBCUs we have, a Japanese American from Fresno, so you know his family is probably in an internment camp right now, a French national who can barely speak English, and a circus performer. That's the team he puts together to take down the Nazis. I'm talking about the movie. I'm talking about the movie. I feel like you can get a good. What are they called? The Whaling Commandos? How are they called? Howling Commandos. Howling Commandos. I don't feel like we. Like I remember seeing the movie and everyone was like freaking out the Howling Commandos and I was like I have no idea who these people are. I don't think the movie really like gave us much of a right. You saw their race ethnicity, of course, but I just don't feel like I didn't know anything about that. Right. Well, like that's the thing though is that like in I'm sorry, comics fans will tell you that comics develops us more. But the right. point is that in terms of what we understand about yeah. Steve Rogers, we get enough then. It's that in the context of where he's from, he decided to put together a multinational, multiracial, multi-ethnic team to go take down the Nazis in World War II. Right. He, he, at a textual level, rejects the team of off-white dudes that they assigned to him right. and builds a team of... All other things, people yeah. and the whole, the whole thing of, while still also kind of filling that war narrative we have of like oh all these people from different neighborhoods the the brooklynite and this guy you know this bostonian and all these the southerner the token southerner who's, who's a good rifle me all that that, that that every movie there's always that but they, you're right they're almost it's always like all white group and then like one black guy usually carried in it's good like vietnam stuff he's always carrying the machine gun <laughs> right, and it's just, and they do it very quickly in the film, but it's implied yeah. that they become a very effective and solid team working together, and yeah. everyone serves a role on that film, yeah. on that team in that film. And no, we don't get a lot more of them from that, but it's, we understand that for Steve, none of this stuff is present. You can tell a lot of stories sometimes by what people don't do, as opposed to what they actually do in terms of stuff. So in the realm of the 1940s, Steve isn't really walking around exposing, exposing a lot of misogyny, or a lot of racism. He right. explicitly builds a team of othered people right. to do all of that. And then that follows through in the Avengers film when he becomes part of a team again. And even in Cap 2, his team is women and black people to go take down Hydra again. So do you think like, so this is, we were talking about this a little earlier before we started recording, like, do you feel like there's, there's too many superhero movies? Do you feel like it's like being just overly milked? That's just becoming the new Hollywood formula for success? Or do you think there's like still stories to tell that are worthwhile and that genre could, could they could release, you know, as many as they do a year continuously? Here's the thing. I don't think any genre ever becomes distasteful until it's clearly retreading its own self. And so like for me with Marvel, we are at 11 films now yeah. and 
three and a half seasons of television and almost every single franchise is headlined by just white males. And I mean, the only other thing that's really technically not headlined by white males is Agent Carter and then in a lot of ways Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But Agent Carter just feels like a retread of a five-minute one-shot where the entire show is watch Peggy Carter fight misogyny in late so 1940s. Like right. And it's annoying especially because we had a one-shot already where Peggy shits on that entire group of dumbass dudes and takes over S.H.I.E.L.D. And then during the season of S.H.I.E.L.D. right before that show premiered, we got a flashback of Peggy leading the Howling Commandos on a raid to take down a Hydra base. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want. I want Peggy leading the Howling Commandos after Steve disappeared. That's the show I want. And instead, I got six episodes of Peggy dealing with misogynistic dudes. And like, the snarky one-liners. Yeah, and... it's not that the show is bad. Like the action in that show is really fantastic, and Haley Atwell is one of one of the best actresses in action right now. I think Haley Atwell is amazing. Following her on Twitter is fun. It's like recently that Agent Carter got renewed, and she tweeted out that someone brought up diversity in their writers' meeting today, and it wasn't her. So that's nice. But it's still like this is 1940s New York. And you watch the show, and all you see is white people. Come on. <laughs> this, is, this is New York. Well, it's, it's like, what's the old joke with uh, Firefly for, for, for cooperative nation of America, America a super government of America, and China, China to share a lot of white, white people. people. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, no, no, like, Chinese is like, like, like a two word phrase they might throw out every like, two episodes. It's, it's just not even, there's no, no integration. It's basically America. <laughs> One of my favorite responses to this <laughs> sort of <laughs> conversation <laughs> when people start citing, like, oh, this is how comics are, this is how comics need to be, blah, blah, blah. This is the history. My favorite thing is to just show them every single com, like superhero movie poster for the past 10 years except for Blade and replace all of the faces on all the heroes with black actors mm-hmm. and then watch white people get uncomfortable with that. Right. And like, that's what it feels like. Well, like when you see... Why are you throwing... Why are you throwing... Why does it have to be about race? Like, well, it's not that it has to be about race. It's that you neglected it. Right. You're filling a void. And that's my point. The point is like... Don't race right? Yeah, exactly. My point is that if it's not about race, why are you so bothered then that we're asking you well, here's a here's a good example. Have you watched Daredevil yet? Loved it. Okay, so to the to the podcast people listening out there, spoiler alert: full discussion of the arc of the Daredevil show coming. Speaking of the arc of the Daredevil show, one of the things that I think would have been really interesting in Daredevil would have been for there to be a sort of textual level acknowledgement of queer feelings between Wilson and Wesley and Matt and Foggy. Like, think about how much more interesting that show would have been if there were some elements of unrequited feelings on that side. So when you look at Wilson and you look at Matt, both of them clearly have identifiers that sort of 
mark them as possibly being autistic. And I'm not going to step into a realm of things and possibly say something problematic. But I've been reading a lot of interesting discussions. I've been reading an interesting. Dis I've been reading interesting discussions from autistic people about how a reading of Matt and Wilson as autistic is really fascinating, especially because they're clearly polar opposites in this. And the entire arc of the show really talks about how they're very similar to each other. Both of them have issues with violence and are kind of addicted to it. Both of them are sort of broken by the world that they're part of. Both of them, and so like Matt has issues with like personal social interaction, but can give eloquent speeches in front of courtrooms. And Wilson yeah. is sort of similar in that regard. And that's really fascinating. That, like these two protagonists are very similar in so many different, these two, this protagonist and antagonist are very similar in a lot of really compelling ways and it creates a very interesting discussion there. I love also that like Foggy ends up basically having a drug intervention with Matt about his crime fighting. And then so like if you think of Wilson and Wesley as a one-sided homosexual attraction where Wesley is completely devoted to Wilson. And Wilson In case I've forgotten Wilson Fisk is the main bad guy. Right. Wesley was his right hand man. There's a lot of names in that show. <laughs> thank thank you. I know I, I tend to get that stuff. I oh no, thank you. We should probably out. make that clear. So Wesley's Wilson's like road dog, the dude who's handling everything for him. Right. And then Fisk and Wesley are apparently like BFFs. So if you read the show as Wesley has really strong romantic feelings for Wilson that Wilson cannot reciprocate. But Wilson understands that, appreciates that, respects that, but also uses it. You have a very interesting comparison where let's say, let's say even if we didn't make Matt Murdock gay, let's leave Matt Murdock straight. Let's not step on his relationships with the women in the show, especially Claire, because Claire's pretty cool. But let's say Foggy had feelings for Matt at one point. You have a very interesting comparison also in the show, fitting with everything else that you have, of Foggy drawing the line with Matt, where Wesley never draws the line with Wilson and ends up getting killed for continuing to do all these evil things for him. Foggy drew the line. He's like, no, all of this stuff you're doing, not okay. You are inherently endangering both me and, oh my God, what is her name? Oh, um. Um. This is terrible. You're endangering both Foggy and the one who works in our office. This is terrible. I need to remember her name. It's gonna bother me because I remember Claire's name. Why can't I remember her name? She's super important. Yeah. It's not Vanessa because Vanessa's the woman Wilson ended up with. Yeah. It's going to come to me. The point is, he's like, you can't do this because you're inherently endangering the people close to you. And what you're doing is an invasion of privacy. And after all this talk about working inside of the law for us, look at what you're doing. And I think that's really, really fascinating. Like, in terms, like, in, like, this is an example of how... Your part's antithetical to your entire reality. Right. This is an example of how, like, Marvel's whole not-gay thing can sometimes create worse storytelling as a result. Like there is a further dynamic that could have been explored there if you had let there be a queer reading of that. And it's the same thing that happens in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where during the early part of the second season... Have you watched that show? I haven't watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay, yet. well, I'm going to talk about some stuff real quick. That's okay. So I, I've got my friend talking about A character... Yeah, one of the, like. So you've got the science... You've got the science... <laughs> you've got the science team, Fitzsimmons. At the end of the season... Of the first season, Fitz confesses how much he loves Gemma, and then 
blows open a hatch because they got thrown underwater by a douchebag. And he ends up taking brain damage in that process from lack of oxygenation. And so the second season opens with him disabled now. He is not neurotypical anymore. His brain does not work properly anymore. And he's lost his best friend as a result because she couldn't handle him not being neurotypical anymore. And they never talked about the fact that he confessed how much he cared about her at the end of that season. So he's kind of lost right now. And then like he creates this subconscious projection of Simmons to help him cope with stuff. And his subconscious acknowledges that he finds Mac attractive. This is a, another male character introduced. Yeah. I'm not going to get into Marvel's no more than two black people on the show thing right now. But it's implied that Fitz and Mac are developing, well, they're developing an obviously close friendship on the show. And Mac is helping him cope with being disabled now and helping him find ways to be useful and get his own skill sets back. And that's a really cool storyline. And because at a text level, the show acknowledges that Fitz at some level finds Mac attractive, there could have been a really cool dynamic done later in that season when the other S.H.I.E.L.D. plot line gets introduced, which is totally boring and creates like four or five boring episodes of television. It would have been far more interesting if we'd have explored how Fitz felt about being betrayed by Mac instead of how Hunter felt feeling betrayed by Bobby because both of those characters are actually kind of bland on the show. And I feel like it would have been far more interesting with Fitz and Mac that way. And especially it would have been interesting to sort of explore that. So like Simmons is just going off the deep end. She's much darker this season. She's been, because of everything that's happened, Simmons is much more ruthless this season. And it would have been interesting to see how that played out with how Fitz felt being abandoned by her. And now how she feels about Fitz finding something in someone else. There's so much more that could have been done with this show if they hadn't gone down the not gay route with this again. And that's one of my issues sometimes with Marvel. I think they, they often lose space to tell fascinating stories because they, they have to stick to this compulsory heterosexuality thing. Because there's a lot of romance in Marvel when you look at it. There's romances all over the place. And most of them honestly fall flat, at least for me, from a narrative perspective, because I don't think a lot of them are earned. Like, and so like that, that's sometimes a thing for me with them is that because they've, they've limited themselves in the, the types of stories they would tell, it's created really bland storytelling. And because they don't allow for it, they sometimes tread into like really dangerous space. You're talking about movies as opposed to the comics still, right? Yeah. Shows, just like the television film. Yeah, I'm talking about Marvel's right. movie version. Right like the comics tend to at least show the nuance to some degree, even if they don't fully explain Right, it depends on the comic you're talking about. Right. But, but comics, you'll see it somewhere. Yeah, comics are a lot more ahead than the movies at this time. <laughs> but it's, it's something I think that needs to be talked about more often because... Right. It's 2015 for starters. <laughs> it's 2015, <laughs> but it's that's the thing is that like, but like the, the joke is that at least Disney Marvel is consistent with it, and so like we joke about how DC hasn't made a Wonder Woman film. Right. Also, um, I was going to ask like, how do you feel DC does with all this? Do you feel they're just as bad, or do you feel that they too just don't? Well, I haven't watched Gotham, but I have heard that Gotham is like the gayest superhero show ever made. So I'm a little curious about that, and I might check that show. But I've been. Avoiding DC because the grimdark thing doesn't really work for me. 
And there's a, Gotham is the problem. They're trying to do too many villains at once. Yeah. Like, apparently they've spread themselves really thin. I don't like all that name dropping villainy stuff either. It gets a little tedious sometimes because there's a there becomes a point when too much fan service creates bad storytelling. And like too much the modern setup. The modern Star Trek movies are a prime example of that. And I grew up on Star Trek, and I love Star Trek. But there are so many random name drops yeah. in Star Trek and Into Darkness that are not good for, from a narrative perspective. All you it don't, does is cause confusion, like, potentially. I'm a fan. I'm going to see the film, okay? You don't need to get me into the theater. I'm fine. I'm going to go see everything that has Star Trek on it, even if I'm going to bitch about it for years afterwards, which I have. So... <laughs> So mission failure. <laughs> but it's like you do all of these, you do all of these fan service stuff, so that the fans can be like, "Oh man, we're so special," but it doesn't create compelling stories as a result. Yeah. And cheap in Star Trek, like Star Trek has become forgettable summer action space adventure film. And honestly, it's been like that since generations. For anyone who watches Star Trek out there, Star Trek movies have sucked since the nineties. Since generations, <laughs> they've all been bad. <laughs> but, By the way, my Twitter handle is. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. You want to you talk to me? My Twitter handle is Ben Gio, B E N G I Y O. We can talk about this. Oh, man. <laughs> Star Trek movies have been bad for a long time. They have been yeah. forgettable, dumb action films for a very long time. And it has been bad for a very long time. <laughs> You have to accept that. Picard is not an action hero. He's a diplomat. Oh, man. Let me not go into a Star Trek movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But this is the fun of it. This is, this is, oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. It's fantastic. I don't know. I, I think it's great. Well, I don't, wanna, I don't want to go niche with Star Trek. Like, I'd rather talk about the Marvel stuff because it's current. Because, yeah. like, well, like, I've talked about Daredevil here. But let me be clear. I enjoyed Daredevil immensely. I think Daredevil is a prime example. It's a critique example. hat more than a yeah. hated hat. Daredevil was amazing. Daredevil for me was a great example of how Marvel can tell compelling stories when they stick to genre and they go smaller. So Captain America Winter Soldier is probably the best film Marvel has made yet. That was yet a phenomenal movie. Because they went genre with that. That was a spy thriller from start to finish. And Sam Wilson is structured as a love interest in an action film. His first interaction with Steve is a meet cute. They're running around the, yeah. around the park and then hanging out under the tree. Then he goes to see Sam at his work yeah. and talk about how sad of a person he is. And then uh, yeah. when things get worse later, he goes to Sam's house. How does he know where Sam lives? <laughs> he goes to Sam's house <laughs> and Sam helps well, him out. And I'm going to go a little bit of a tangent here because I was saying this earlier with you that it's just a bone of what to pick and people are... I was trying to kind of lead you with the question earlier, so I'd I can't be led. No, it's a leading question of like, do you think there's too many? And I think that people have been whining and saying, "We're all superhero movie number blank, aren't we? Aren't we tired of this derivative nonsense?" And I'm like, Dude, we, like I said, I think the worry is that we've endured the western for like 30 years. And the thing is, though, the topics change. It's it's, it's that it's a it's a conduit to tell something bigger. And so right. when you look at like Into Darkness, be as critical as you want, but it was absolutely, absolutely, absolutely about violation of nation sovereignty. <laughs> Um, uh, drone strikes. It was about a very current anxiety. It had that. That was a big theme in it. It was a little on the nose, but it was definitely a big theme in it. And, then, and the, what I liked about Winter Soldier was it was 
surveillance, NSA. So that was all, that was like 100% about, that was a big theme in it. It wasn't what the movie's about. It was a big theme. That was a, I thought that was very clear. Yeah, yes, we'll do the comparison there. So, like, both of those films, End of Darkness and Winter Soldier... Winter Soldier has a ton of problems. Reach, they both Still reach for important themes current and relevant right. to our time. The problem that Into Darkness has is that Into Darkness does not tell the story through its characters. Yeah. Who are sympathetic, who are understood. And then Captain America tells that story explicitly yeah. through the people involved. Right. There is an abject rejection of the notion that everyone has to be watched and have a gun held to their head right. at all times. The characters are debating it amongst right. themselves instead of like this vague discussion of like on a planet with a nation we haven't seen in the movies that mm-hmm. haven't been established by a, je- a faceless general. Right, and so the main guy, you know, it was so it was so detached. And like, here's how earned this is: Steve gets sent on a black ops mission in the beginning. Yeah, realizes but, that he was lied to about the mission, is not happy about <coughs> that, gets into an argument with Fury. That inherently institutes the philosophical disagreement here. Fury is like, this is what we need. We need to be preemptive. We need to stop this shit before it happens. And Steve is like, no. What fuck happens this. Law and, and then, and, yeah. right after that, Fury gets attacked. The entire apparatus he's set up has turned against him. Right, right after we have a conversation about how that shit is not okay, he loses control, he loses control of it. Right. Immediately. The film has made you think about that by introducing it early enough that at some level your brain is thinking about this as you're watching the film. And Winter Soldier earns all of this, and then it also reaches it from a humanistic perspective at the end. This is why Age of Ultron included that same guy who had the gun held to his head, who rejects the notion. He says, fire, launch the ships, and he says no. And then Agent 33 saves him. But that guy became a hero of the film because he doesn't have superpowers. Wait, Age of Ultron. Wait, when, when did that happen in Age of Ultron? So remember Winter in Winter Soldier, Soldier, the guy who. No, I remember that when. That yeah. guy. That's the same guy who's on the helicarrier. The guy whose oh, face we see. That's why he's there. That's why he's there. But this is. This is why Age of Ultron is bad because things like that aren't earned because they just reached for that from Winter Soldier and I'm like, oh, that's that guy. But I only know that because I'm paying attention. <laughs> See, I'm I've been watching all the movies. See what I mean? <laughs> and that—that that, never mind. We got—we're starting this topic. So, End of Darkness, though. They started talking you're about very the very self-controlled and avoiding hard tangents. You're—you're you're much better about that than I am. So, End of Darkness. End <laughs> Darkness, though. So, we talked about how Winter Soldier earns that by bringing that up early. Into Darkness does not do this. Yeah. Into Darkness gets so caught up in the mystery of is Benedict Cumberbatch going to be fucking con and. You end up dealing with too many different things, and we once again get caught up in this awkward romance between Ahura and Spock that I'm just not feeling. Because Star Trek... I do not understand her motivation for at all. Right. I do, I do not see It's it. an yeah. other example of Star Trek having a case of the not gays. Like... <laughs> <sighs> so, let me say this now. James Tiberius Kirk is not a womanizer. In his original history, James Kirk is a feminist. He is a 1970s feminist, not a womanizer. And I really hate that the new Star Trek films paint him as a womanizer. Right, and the thing is, though, it's like in all of the interactions Kirk has with women, the women want to be there, and Kirk is respectful. And whenever there's an issue of consent, Kirk does not participate. So, like, one of the most iconic scenes in Star Trek 
is the on-screen kiss between him and Ohura. But like people talk about that kiss being an on-screen kiss, and like the, the fact that it's a, a white man kissing a black woman is important in that era. But what's also important from a narrative perspective, and also talking about issues of feminist this is the critique. Original this is the original yeah, this right. is the original yeah, side yeah. check. I was just excited. I know, I'm yeah, a, yeah. I know. <laughs> we're on a weird tangent. I'm on a tangent about Kirk. But so the Kirk, but he's her, yeah. forced to kiss her because they're up against some sort of alien that has mind control powers. Right. And he's forced to kiss Ohura. And it's very clear he does not want to do this. And during the kiss, he is glaring at the alien, making them do this for his amusement because that's sexual abuse. Right. James T. Kirk has always stood up for women on the show. I can cite all sorts of examples for this, but the point is that the new film doesn't really do that, and then it gets it it's uses the way. it almost goes the opposite way because the whole thing is the whole film is about this whole not gay thing. So like Bones has to have a wife. Because otherwise, why is he palling around with all these young kids? Spock has to have a relationship with Uhuru because the dude doesn't have a lot of emotion. Like he's stoned, he can't read him unless Oh, he might be anything. he yeah. might be gay for Kirk, and because their friendship is pushed so hard in this, they they have to enforce this whole not gay thing on this entire franchise, and it's so awkward because like the Spurk, Spurk. Jesus. The Kirk-Spock friendship is an earned friendship in film and cinema over 30 years of their interactions on the show and their interactions through six fucking movies. So their, their friendship and how steadfast they've been is an earned thing from seeing them grow for 30 like years. Cast, I mean, you see it. The films want to set that up over the course of like four days. <laughs> and and then here's the other thing. To anyone out there getting mad about me talking about the lack of the lack of queer representation in cinema and how I'm making everything gay. If you make ninety percent of the speaking roles in your film all males, why are you surprised that people are wondering at the potential queer feelings that are gonna be there? Want things right. to not be read so gay? Put more women in your show. Watch the 100, everyone. <laughs> Drop the mic. Drop the mic. If you Just don't like, kick over my tribe. <laughs> you don't want us reading. I'm looking real hard at you right now, Supernatural. If you don't want us reading queerness into your show, maybe don't put so many men in your goddamn show talking about their feelings all the time. So. <laughs> and then having them go. Hook up with someone random to somehow strip that back oh, down again. Oh man, <laughs> queer baiting is the worst thing. Just don't do it. Not even once. Don't do it. Like it's it's lame because it's an easy thing to do. Gay the gay the gay TV and movie going audience is a very content starved audience. Yeah. You even hint that there might be something gay going on in it, and the gays will show up immediately to watch your show. And then they'll bail well, on it. Grace. Looking at oh, looking at uh, you, <laughs> looking at you. Once upon a time, once upon a time is guilty of this. Yeah. They introduced a sort of bisexual Milan arc, and then they threw that away, and then I bailed on the show. Well, the thought that just occurred to me was how many like period pieces, especially like medieval stuff, Game of Thrones, yada yada yada. Like homosexuality is just there. It's not even like the main characters, but you just like you you see it. 
problems you see, although some of the main character experience. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you think that, like, by somehow divorcing the time period, it's more okay to talk about it because they did it, not us? Do you think that? That's my. This is totally off the let's, cuff. Yeah, let's switch Shot topics. Let's yeah. switch topics for a bit. Let's talk about Game of Thrones for a second. So, I have not watched the episode from last night yet. I haven't watched last night, but I watched the previous And I'm not sure if I'm going to watch it yet because right now. I am very frustrated at Game of Thrones' continued use of sexual abuse against women as a cheap tool to make this world look more dark and more violent and more dangerous. I don't like the notion that people hold on to that women were more abused in medieval times than they are now. I think that's a, a sad notion, and I, don't, I do not support the notion that we're like progress is a straight line going up. I think there's a lot of times we step I think there's too many times we step back. And so for anyone out there who's defending that rape scene of Sansa Stark as something necessary to show how brutal this world is, this is the third time a female character on that show who's been an important character has been raped. Yeah. This has nothing to do with all, and I'm not even counting all the rape of women who don't have names on this show. And each time this comes up, they never show how that affects the women going forward. Cersei gets raped and then continues to go about the show following the arc of the books or whatever arc they have her on. Danny's was interesting because Danny was a different character after the fact. And that one was also poorly handled. And now here we are with Sansa where the framing of this is that Sansa's being brutalized and we hear it. And then we're watching Theon slash Reek be horribly upset about this and if that is going to be used to sort of force him back into being Theon Greyjoy and become a good character again that is horribly disgusting and so here's a couple of things I want you to do out there if you're using rape as a means to make male characters in your story become better people don't do it and here's another question if you're going to write a rape scene in your story where a woman is going to get raped by a man I want you to rewrite that scene as a, the same male character raping a six-year-old boy. And then tell me if you think that rape scene still needs to be in your work. If the rape is important for the world building, we need to talk about the fact that children also get raped. Because if rape is real and happens often and needs to be something we need to talk about, change that to a six-year-old boy and tell me if it still needs to be in your work or if it would be too much. I guess the only attack on the thing that's been driving me crazy, though, is that people are going like, we've been watching the show for five seasons. We watched a head literally get compressed until it exploded. We've seen multiple rapes. We've seen all these things. And suddenly, because a character that people like got raped, suddenly they're outraged. And I go, you know, I don't think outrage can be selective. I think it needs to be, it, you, you either support Game of Thrones or you don't. I'm not saying that it was a properly motivated scene, but when people are just saying, how could they have that rape scene? I'm like, oh, you mean like the other ones? I'm like, dude, you either hate them, you either... Here's the thing, though. Like, I'm a little mixed about that. In the circles, selective. It in feels the, selective. In the circles I engage with, we were all riled up about the Danny scene. Sure. The Cersei scene and the Sansa scene. And the problem but is... But consistent. But the, thing is, but the problem is that we've been talking about this for years and we're only hearing about it now because exactly. feminism is getting clicks now. This is like... Let's talk about Snowpiercer now. So let's, <laughs> So this is the exact thing. This is yeah. why capitalism, in a lot of ways, is so insidious. So you silence feminist voices for decades. But now that you're getting lots of clicks on your websites, if you mention feminist discourse, 
Now suddenly we're going to hear about how upset people are about the rape scene because it's going to get us clicks on our website. I was going to say, it's outrage sells. It is a, it is a huge thing right now. It's just outrage sells. So that's kind of where I am. The point for me is that like you can tell grim dark stories. I'm not a huge fan of grim darkness. I watch Game of Thrones because I've read the books because they're cultural touchstones. And I stay connected to what's going on in the culture. So I see what people are consuming and right. what people are engaging with. I don't really want to watch Game of Thrones anymore because I am really, really bothered by this particular continued trope yes. with this show. It is very cheap, and it is really, really upsetting every single time it happens. And the cultural attitude surrounding it, where we're supposed to just okie-doke our way through that, is really, really disturbing to me. And so that's why I continue to talk about it. But it's really worrisome that that, continues to be a trope that continues on this show. And like, if you're going to talk about sexual assault and how this is really bad and stuff, why do you never focus on how it affects the victims yeah. of the assault? If you're going to talk about it, talk about the people who are the most affected by it. Don't use it as a, a cheap way to make someone bad or whatever. And speaking of making someone bad, here's the inherent problem with Game of Thrones for this. What has been fascinating about this show is that you have not had black and white villains and good guys. Sure. Except for Ned Stark. And even, and his, is, even his is questionable. Right. You've had an entire show built around how gray the morality of this world is. Right. Tyrion's a good guy, but he's got problems. Ned's a good guy, but he may have lied about some things. Joffrey's an awful, awful kid, but he's the product of incest and spoiled parentage. So can he be blamed for how awful he is, or should his parents be blamed? Like, the fascinating morality around that show has been one of its strongest selling points for so long. And this entire season has been out to make clear villains and clear heroes. And that has made the show inherently more boring for me to watch as a result, too. And that's sort of the thing. Behind certain people and others, right. which is like the Hound, which is such an amazingly complex character. Exactly. Right. Even Arya, like, and see, like, it made that payoff, and Arya left him to die. Like, exactly. That just the that was probably one of the top three scenes of the show. Exactly. And that was that was brilliant. But those sort of scenes are earned, and yes. this, like, we already hate Ramsay. Yeah. Why do we have to go further with that? Right. I, I do agree. I do not think the scene was necessary, and again, I think it was gratuitous. I'm just so bothered, not by people not liking that scene. I just hate it. People stood by the show for five seasons, and suddenly, when this one gets the press, suddenly, or even the show's a problem. I'm like, dude, it's either a problem with you or it isn't. Like you were saying, the others bothered you too. Y'all, you've been consistent. The inconsistency is driving me crazy. But here's it's the, driving me crazy. Here's the sort of problem that happens with this sort of cultural stuff. Like, you can sit there and talk about not liking football, Yeah. but if you're in a football town... You have to know about football. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And it's sort of the same thing. Like, you can sit here and talk about how much you hate comic books and superhero movies, but there are 33 superhero films coming out in the next four to five years. Yeah. We've already had two this year so far, and there's another one coming, and there's probably more in the fall. You cannot escape them. It's the same thing. Like, you can sit here and talk about how much you don't like Clint Eastwood films but everyone has had to watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly at some sure. point. And that's sort of the problem, is that 
we don't have another place to go to consume content that we want because this is what is popular and what everyone's talking about. And the problem is that like, so like I can sit here and talk about the lack of queer discourse and big cinema and big TV shows, but what am I supposed to go do? Read small scale books and hang out at fine art galleries all the time? That's not the way you sort of push for the kind of social change you want in these sort of things. You need to continue pushing against these sort of monolithic cultural touchstones in our society and talk about these sort of things. So like Star Wars is coming out again. And it feels like we're retreading the same fucking issues with Star, Trek, Star Wars again. Star Wars A New Hope came out back in, I think, 73. And everybody was like, where's all the black people? And so when Empire Strikes rolls around, they got Billy D. Williams to be part of this. He's like the Samuel Jackson of his era. Love you, Billy D. Williams. And there's black people everywhere in the background in Cloud City. And some of the rebels. And so here we go again with the new Star Wars film. There are nine new cast members who are going to be playing roles in this film. Eight of them are white. One of them is female. One of them is a black male. So you've got one white woman, one black guy, one black, one black guy, one white woman, and then seven white dudes. But you think Star Wars is for everyone, right? No, apparently not. You're like, but no. That's the thing is, it's, it's fantasy. It's science fiction fantasy. Yeah. It's set in a galaxy far, far away from us. Why is everyone white? Yeah. And that dude being a stormtrooper, dude's not a stormtrooper. Luke and Han wore stormtrooper outfits in the first film. Are they stormtroopers? Shut the fuck up. We'll see the film, and then we'll talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guy who's in the stormtrooper outfit in the teasers. My I mean that's a that's an argument. That's, that's an argument. Like, there's there's some there's some people in the the black blogosphere who are worried that he's a stormtrooper, and I'm like, calm down, y'all. We're not. There's a lot of things to be mad about when it comes to Star Wars' lack of representation. That particular thing is like a low level thing on that list. Let's deal with the prime issues first. Yeah, the prime issue is why there's seven white dudes. So we'll see. We'll see. But. On the plus side, this year, two important things have happened. Furious 7 has made a billion and a half dollars. That is a franchise about black and Latin people who love each other and put family first and then race cars around. That's amazing. <laughs> and it's become a superhero franchise. No one can die in that franchise, which is especially awkward considering that Paul Walker is dead. Like, the ghost of Paul Walker is walking through that whole film. And all these scenes where he's not dying, you know dude's dead from a car crash yeah. in real life. So that's kind of trippy. And right now, Mad Max is killing it. And I loved it. The men's rights guys come out the woodworks, the echo chamber amplifies them. And what happens? More ticket sales. <laughs> it's I great. love it. Like, it's so, feminist propaganda. What's... What's really fascinating to me, though, is like I went back and watched the first two Mad Max films uh, after watching Fury Road. Aren't there, aren't there three? There are three. I just haven't finished oh, okay. I haven't got to it. I haven't gotten back to the Beyond Thunderdome yet. I've been busy. Oh, Beyond Thunderdome, sorry. But Tina Turner's in that film, so I'm looking forward to getting back into it. She's amazing. <laughs> yes, everyone. Tina Turner is amazing. So in the first film, 
And the second film, Max isn't really the primary protagonist of this sort of story. It's never, the Mad Max films are never really Max's story. Max ends up getting involved with other people's stories. Right. He's like, just the right. focal point, sort of. For, well, focal he point, is the car. The he is the car we are riding through the film. Right. Yes, making puns. Right. So, <laughs> in the first film, Max becomes a road warrior because his friend the goose gets killed. And then he tries to leave the area and go live with his family <laughs> in peace. And then this biker gang, same biker gang, ends up killing his wife and his child. And then he becomes the road warrior after that. But what's fascinating is we talk about Mad Max films being feminist. The original Mad Max film, which was made in either 73 or 79, passes the Bechdel test, which is a bullshit test. It's and a starting point, like a litmus at best. But that <laughs> film does. There's, there's his wife and this old woman. I think her name is May. Both of them have names. Both of them talk to each other multiple times throughout the film. And when shit hits the fan, the old woman saves the girl. Which happens again in Fury Road. And then you get to Road Warrior or Mad Max 2, and it's the same thing. Max is trying to... Max gets involved with this group of people that are bringing his humanity back to him again. And I don't... It's amazing to me that the people complaining that Mad Max is a feminist-leaning film. Are the same people who oh, are no, no, clearly... They, 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 they call it feminist propaganda. I find that endlessly, endlessly entertaining. Yeah, they call it feminist propaganda. <laughs> but like, I've watched the film. And I'm not going to say it's a... I'm not going to say it's a straight-up feminist film. No, but... It's hilarious. Like, this is not the feminist blockbuster that I think everyone wants, but we're getting there. Right. And this film was really, really cool. Like, it didn't feel like it was just paying. It didn't feel like it was trying to like capitalize on it. Felt it felt somewhat authentic. No, it felt really genuine, and that's what's great. And like it's like, so from a non-social justice perspective, <laughs> it feels like George Miller, creator of, of director of Babe, Babe Two, and Happy Feet, yes. came back and was like, he's like your grandpa who walks into a room and sees all this shit, and he's like, all you guys making all these action films, you're fucking it up. Here's how you do it. He creates a two-hour chase film with more compelling characterization and storytelling than almost every other action film we've got it, in the last more ten years. Guitars. Yes. Did you know that prop worked? <laughs> it's a. It's amazing how little CGI is actually in that film. Most oh of the CGI God. in that film is on Charlize Theron's arm because her character in that film is missing part of her left arm. Most of the CGI in that film is on her arm. Most of the sets worked. Most of that was actual props. And I'd like to point out the two most successful action films this year right now, less CGI, more real action. So like- I mean, You know, people, is, ah, people dump on CGI, and I agree, it's, it's, it's abused, it's used as a shortcut, but like, I always say that people go, CGI's never quite as good. I go, have you seen District 9? Because that's an incredible blending of CGI and practical. Oh, let's get into Neil Blomkamp in a second. I was saying, oh, <laughs> Blomkamp's got his own issues. Man, he's never, Elysium could have been, I, I wanted that movie to be so much better than it was. But anyway, I'll let you finish your Fury Well, the, <laughs> So like with Fury, well, here's the thing. It's like, there's a visceral quality to film that is really powerful sometimes. CGI is not inherently bad. CGI... <laughs> Has its place. CGI can be Just really, really compelling. Problem. Yeah. So like, there's bad practicals out there. There's plenty of bad '70s movies that have '70s, '80s movies, terrible practicals. 
it's just really like it's really cool like so like the the scene in Furious Seven where they throw the cars out of the plane. I've seen the teaser. I've seen Furious Seven. I saw six, but not seven yet. I know. I've Real seen cars teaser. really thrown out of. Oh, the I know. Plane. I saw the count. They like destroyed like two hundred and something cars. And I, I was like a whole article on how they like but it creates, the cars. And what it they creates cool shots, and there's a sort there's a visceral <laughs> quality to that that is really really powerful. Sometimes CGI can be really well done. For example, Flubber. Flubber is a terrible film, but Weibo is really well done in that film. Yeah. <laughs> Man, Flubber. I haven't uh, thought about that. Yeah, let me take you back. Jeez. But that's the thing. So, like, it's like, it's like, so, like, it's not just CGI. It's that I think, so you talk about CGI as shortcuts. And that's, I think, sort of the problem is that yeah. where the shortcut itself is not creating the sort of struggles that create compelling stories. So like the original Star Wars film is not what it was originally supposed to be. It becomes what it is because of the limitations of what they could or couldn't do. They couldn't do all these goofy aliens they wanted at first. That's why it's so, case in point, the digital remastered, right? No, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's just trying to get me mad up in here. So, but that's the thing. So, like <laughs> this film, because all the props work, it it lends itself to the sort of gritty feel of that world you're supposed to feel. So, because there isn't a lot of CGI and all these props work, it makes the world itself feel more alive because you can see the cartoons in it. But the point is that. If you're going to use CGI, sometimes you sort of have to embrace that aspect from a narrative perspective. Like a good example of that is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's a really cool movie, inherently dealing with CGI the entire time, but they create cool stuff about it because they inherently embrace it as an aspect of the storytelling. Right. And it creates good things. And like the Star Wars franchise is a great example of good CGI and bad CGI. Fun fact, you know the detective in that was, oh, what's that actor's name? Um, He's a very famous gangster film actor. Mm -hmm. You know, he was Mario in the Mario. Yeah, movie. I know. <laughs> Super Mario amazing. I blew that to the other day, and they were just like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, he fell for you." <laughs> this is just a so. It's like <sighs> CGI is not bad. CGI is very, very, very effective. It's tool. a wonderful tool that can be used horribly. Right. <laughs> the Matrix franchise is a good example of that. Just rewatched that a week ago with my girlfriend. One of my eyes is I talk about rewatching the Matrix. I talk about how well, well exactly a lot of it. Some of it didn't age great. Like actually, I just when he drops the cell phone from the side of the building, it looked so bad. It looked that was so funny. I was like, that's the one that jumped out as the worst CGI moment was the cell phone. The falls. cell phone, For the cell phone reason. falls, and the cell phone itself. Those are the two things that date the film. But overall, even if it, did a great job. even though the CGI for that isn't great, it conveys the point of that like, particular scene. The point, the point of that scene is Neo is not jumping, not going to risk falling off that building. And that's what matters. The point is that sometimes the CGI gets in the way. Like at the beginning of Age of Ultron, the CGI gets in the way. And which is interesting because at the end of Avengers 1, the CGI doesn't get in the way at all. That's a good example of a film that does CGI well because right at that point, it's all grounded in the characters. The point is... This team has finally come together and is here to fight 
all of the animated things coming out of the animated <laughs> black hole in the sky. It doesn't matter that they're CGI at that point. It matters that we care that they're going to beat them. But let's be real. Hulkbuster versus Hulk is so much fun. I it was fun. <laughs> I just, honestly, that's all Have I you seen Age of Ultron? Yeah. Oh my God. Age of Ultron I has... I down in the hydraulics pump. I lost it. I was just like, so ready. <laughs> There's nothing visceral about a ridiculous Here's what scene. I'll say for... <laughs> but you know, you're right there. I enjoyed it, but I had a lot of problems with it. You're right, though. Like, that scene is interesting because it's an earned scene. Because it fits... Well, they've been hinting that fight's brewing. It's, yeah, it was coming. but it's earned. It's yeah, earned exactly. because of the characters in play. You're in that scene because, because that is Hulk out of control, and Tony was prepared for that. You, got, you understand that Tony launched a satellite full of really powerful armaments explicitly to stop Hulk. Well, he's kind of the Batman of that universe in the sense that Batman always has a plan. That's always the thing about Batman. He's, he always has a plan. Right, and, and they're obviously very characteristically different, but that's the, that's kind of a big, big void the two fill in their respective universes. I find, from my little knowledge, but you know, that's fair. No, that comparison is fair for the two of them. They're both billionaires and no powers, and they ultimately just right really good at thinking out of situations and using their money for it. <laughs> the biggest problem I have with Age of Ultron is that it felt like a comic book movie yeah. in the worst ways. Like I love, that's like I'm, jokes. like I like comic books. And I don't mind jokes. I don't mind comic. I like comic Ultron books. Ultron cracks me jokes. That's what I'm saying. I want him to be a little. Well, that's the thing. This fiercely dark villain. I was so ready for Spader to just creep me the hell out. Like when he comes out with his puppet monologue and he's like creepily moving his arm. That was that was amazing. And then it just all of a sudden he was such a caricature of Tony Stark to emphasize the mental impact. I was like, okay, I get it. But like. Stop making a damn joke all the time and being like, oh, come on, really? You know, he does those kinds of gaps. I'm like, dude, and too he, far, too far. But that's the thing is that those particular traits would have been okay if they'd been earned. Right. Ultron wakes up and within 30 seconds of film is like, oh my God, look at all this war and destruction. Time to kill all the humans. Right. Jarvis move. Slash, Jarvis is dead. Yeah. The audience goes, oh no, Jarvis is dead. This guy's bad. Yeah. With a capital B. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes out and he's like, I gotta kill all the people. And then he hangs out with the, the Nazi Maximoff twins now. Which I'm never getting over, by the way. <laughs> and we should do an entire podcast just on how awful the whitewashing and Nazification of those characters was. So... <laughs> so... Ultron... Like the did we go Godwin? Did that count as us going like Godwin? Did this, our, did, did, did this episode of the podcast just go full Godwin? I'm trying to figure that out if we cross that line. Just I don't know. <laughs> the point for you me... compare them to Hitler, so I, I think we, we might be okay. No, but... All right, just a quick aside so we can so people out there who are confused. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, at its own textual level, has set up that Hydra and the Nazis are synonyms for each other. Basically. In its world. For all of the Marvel fans out there saying, but comics, there are dozens of Marvel universes, and none of you have a problem talking about separate Marvel universes all the time. This is a separate Marvel universe. In this particular universe... 
Sky on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Steve have said that Hydra equals Nazis. The Maximoff twins, Pietro and Wanda, not only are white in this, but have willingly signed up to be experimented on by the Nazis. (laughs) And they joined up with that organization. And you are not going to okey-doke me into them being good guys at the film because some fucking relief ships land and Pietro goes, oh, I like this shield. No. I just threw up my hands in complete disgust. I did. I, I liked uh, Quicksilver of Days of Future Past. He was awesome. I, yeah. I thought he was very entertaining. But he was, more, he was more fun yeah. and you got an impression of his character when you first meet him in his basement where he's just fucking around. He's also, honestly, I think you've seen more powerful in Days of Future Past than they did in Age of Ultron. He seemed a lot faster. Yeah. <laughs> but they focused on that. Yeah. And they don't in Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron is an, it's just a film just crushed under the weight of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There are so many one-off lines that are clearly comics things yeah. designed to okey-doke you through stuff. So why is Sam Wilson at this party? Oh, because people liked Anthony Mackie, and we need to make sure he's in this film where people would be like, where's Falcon? So he has a quick line with Steve to go, yeah, so I have no leads on your friend, so keep doing this whole movie, and we'll get back to that in Civil War, coming in 2016. (laughs) (laughs) TM, copyright. And so, like, late in the film, when they're saving everyone, now don't get me wrong, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to nitpick all these issues I have with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Age of Ultron and talk about how narratively I really felt like Ultron was a really weak villain, which is especially annoying after watching Daredevil. Because you know Marvel is capable of writing compelling villains. Although I thought they tore Fist down too far by the end to make him that badass strutting down the bridge with the SWAT team truck. I was like, I don't believe he's that guy anymore. Honestly, I they tore him down too much. honestly, that particular episode was written by the original showrunners, and I think that's why they're not the showrunners in the next season. All the best episodes of the show are written by the new showrunners. Right. I feel like the last episode was too... Just Vanessa just tore him down. It, it totally removed him as a strong character. Like A guy who made it that far should not have been so easily derailed. Like, if he climbed so viciously to the top, and, like, when he lost his anonymity, it just wasn't a big deal. Like, that was such a big thing. We don't say his name. You don't. You never deal with him. And then suddenly, it's just, like, everyone calls him Fist. He deals with everyone in person. I just think they, they just totally deconstructed the character and then tried to bring him back to the original character so quickly. It drove me crazy. I was like, that, that's not the natural arc of a guy who's been established for decades. That just doesn't happen like that. I just didn't believe it. I don't know. It bothered me. Maybe there's a reason for it. I think that Fisk's derailment was okay because it all sort of cascaded from one choice. When he lost control and killed the Russian. Sure, and that was like when the others started doubting him and and all that. Coupled with Matt and friends just fucking up his operation. Those two different things, I think, are why I'm okay with it. Because he made a con- he kept making bad choices after that. But how did that's what I'm curious. Like, how did that start? Like, I, I guess the I don't know. I I, I just still I, I guess it just like I said it just boils down when I saw that strutting down the bridge after 
taking over the SWAT team truck and everything and going to his helicopter and everything. I did not believe that was the character I'd seen 20 no. minutes earlier. I just didn't believe in him anymore. No, the final episode falls a little flat for me. Yeah. Just, but the episodes that. before that were really, really great. Yes, yes, yes. But that's the problem. I think that last episode is honestly why the showrunners were replaced because that last episode felt very comics book. He shouldn't have recovered. I think it should have, the cascade should have continued and everything like, what if he went on the truck and then suddenly they didn't help him? They were like, nope, the other guys paid us off. Let me make another comment about... That would make more sense to me. Let me make another comment about the Marvel Cinematic Universe now that we're talking about this. So Daredevil has been received really well by audiences and critics. Yup. So... You go. We are now going to make a second season of Daredevil. The question for me becomes, when is the Defenders show supposed to come out? Right. Because you're doing AKA Jessica Jones right now. We know you're filming that because io9 is stalking that that show. But when are you going to release the Luke Cage and Iron Fist shows? And if you're going to do a Daredevil 2, when is the Defenders show supposed to come out? Is this going to be a three to four or five year thing down the road? Right. How long are these people going to be locked in the contracts? When is this all coming out? This is sort of the inherent problem for me with comic books entering movies and television that comics itself doesn't have. So when comics take six months to make it through two weeks, it's like, okay, at least you're getting it once a month. But when you're getting comic shows and movies once every couple of years, it's very unsatisfying for me. And now you're at a point where, are you really going to tell someone to go watch 11 movies at at least two hours a pop? And then three and a half seasons of television to be properly versed in this movie verse now? You're asking someone to commit upwards to 100 hours of their life to catching up on your fucking franchise. And this, like, Age of Ultron, for me, and sort of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are examples of the cracks starting to form. In yeah. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you can see the wave is starting to bear down on itself. So like when you talk to comics fans about what Thanos is and what the Infinity Gems are. Let me try and explain this in a succinct way. Yeah. For those of you listening so you understand how <laughs> convoluted this is. So here's the, here's the beauty of every Marvel film. Every Marvel film, the solution to the problem is teamwork and trust. That's how you solve every problem in every Marvel film. I don't have a problem with this. I think that's fantastic. I think teamwork and compassion are the tools that we're going to need to save our planet from ourselves. This is all inspiring and things I'm here for. How does Tony stop the military-industrial complex in Iron Man 3? He teams up with his girlfriend and his best friend and a little kid, and they save us from the military industrial complex creating this villain in the Mandarin, who's actually a villain, might show up later, blah, blah, blah. And Cap 2, how do we stop the surveillance society that is bearing down on us? We look each other in the face and we use the power of friendship and teamwork and we shut that shit down. How does Thor stop an infinity gem from getting in the hands of some fucked up dark elves? He teams up with his Asgardian friends and his Earth friends and they use the power of teamwork and they shut it down. That's the third. That's the trend here. So here's Thanos. Thanos is an all-powerful being, hanging out in space, who is in love with death. 
Death has a physical embodiment in the Marvel Universe. Thanos is in love with her and wants her to love him. The Infinity Stones are the power of a god that got bored and killed itself thousands of thousands of years ago. In Guardians of the Galaxy, people were literally hanging out in that god's head, mining materials from it. The Infinity Gems are six cosmic stones that hold immense power and are different manifestations of that god's power. When the six gems are brought together in the Infinity Gauntlet, you will be able to basically become a god and do whatever you want. Thanos wants to use that power to kill as many people as possible so that death can love him. That is really fucking dense. So, how then, over the course of five hours, because they're going to break it into two parts, they're probably going to be two and a half hours long, do the Avengers defeat him with the power of friendship and teamwork? (laughs) That's really, really dense plot material that is not conducive to the fun, light atmosphere of summer blockbusters. Chance about love while he peels back their skulls. <laughs> that is how Guardians of the Galaxy ended. <laughs> well, good need to wrap it up. I need need to get back, but dude, thanks for coming out. This is really fun. Yeah, no, we can do this again. This oh, no, trust me, we will. We will. We just talked about comics and movies today. We got so much more we can talk oh, about. Yeah. We can talk about little time. We can talk about like. College is doomed. College is doomed. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks again. Uh, thanks for the technical hiccups here. And, oh, uh, no problem. We had fun. All right, man. <laughs> and I guess uh, that's about it. Cheers.